Welcome to City Club of Portland's Friday Forum. I'm Emily Evans from the Women's Foundation of Oregon. Thank you for joining us at the Ecotrust Building in Northwest Portland, where thousands of people are joining us online, on the radio, and on TV. So 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which finally placed women's right to vote in the United States Constitution. Oregon was one of several Western states that saw early victories in this area. How has the women's vote impacted Oregon over the last 100 years? What barriers remain? In celebration and reflection of this historic anniversary, we have a wonderful panel of scholars, historians, and changemakers here with us today. With us are Shandine Garcia, Executive Director of the Educator Advancement Council, Eliza Canty-Jones, Editor of the Histor Oregon Historical Quarterly and Director of Community Engagement at the Oregon Historical Society, and Dr. Shirley A. Jackson, Professor in the Department of Black Studies at Portland State University. Please join me in welcoming today's panelists. So let's start out with a sort of quick thumbnail sketch of the history of women's suffrage in Oregon. Helpfully, Eliza just finished curating an upcoming show on this topic. Uh, it's called Nevertheless, They Persisted, and it'll be at the Oregon Historical Society starting in March. So Eliza, would you mind painting us a sort of quick picture of suffrage in Oregon, and then Shandine and Shirley can chime in if there are points they want to emphasize or round out as we set the stage. Sure, but many, many advisors, including Dr. Jackson, so thanks very much. Um, when we think about the history of suffrage and voting rights in Oregon history, it's bound up in state history, it's bound up in national history, we're thinking about citizenship, we're thinking about laws, we're thinking about um, what's legal and then what's happening outside the bounds of laws, right? So in 1857, uh, a group of white men gathered in Salem to write an Oregon state constitution. They restricted voting just to white men in that document, which the United States Congress um, ratified in 1859. And so we became a state initially with one of the most exclusive constitutions in the country, and you can learn more about that. Um, Oregon women began organizing for suffrage in 1871, which was just one year after the ratification of the 15th Amendment, which granted suffrage to black men who had just worked for and earned their freedom through the Civil War and the passage of the 13th Amendment and other actions. Of course, uh, black men and women and white women and other folks had been advancing the cause of women's suffrage and equal suffrage for black folks for a long time before that. Uh, but we see the first organized women's suffrage movements happening in the early 1870s, a visit from Abigail Scott Dunaway, a 2,000-mile trip with... Um, excuse me, Abigail Scott Dunaway was already here. Susan B. Anthony came to visit, and she and Abigail Scott Dunaway went on a 2,000-mile trip around the Pacific Northwest. And the formal fight for women's suffrage began then, extended through 1912 and 1920. After five unsuccessful efforts, uh, in 1912, Oregon women won the right to vote. And then, of course, in 1920, the 19th Amendment was ratified. And Oregon, as a state, was one of the states that ratified the 19th Amendment, unlike the 15th Amendment. Because women already had the right to vote in Oregon by that time, there were Oregon women in there was an Oregon woman in the Oregon State Legislature who was able to put forth that legislation in a special session for ratification, uh, which is pretty cool. And Oregon women who continued to fight for the 19th Amendment, um, including uh, being arrested and protesting in Washington D.C. and all of that. 
that's not really the end of suffrage history for women in Oregon, um, because even though legally all women gained the right to vote, all women who were citizens in 1912 and 1920, um, realistically, it was not till passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that we saw really the, the kinds of necessary changes to remove restrictions to the ballot um, from for all kinds of folks and then there were amendments to that in the 1970s and 1980s and of course as we all remember in 2013 the Supreme Court then took a lot of the teeth out of the Voting Rights Act so um, it's really a history of advances and fallbacks and a lot of organizing and cooperation and conflict in this history um, so I'll stop with that for now <laughs> Sure, just a quatsi to Hename Shandine, Sena Hanusta. Hello, my name is Shandine Garcia. I am Chicana and Laguna Pueblo from New Mexico. I've been in Oregon for about 16 years now. Um, while we talk about uh, the rights of women to vote through the 19th Amendment, Native Americans didn't receive citizenship until 1924, and it wasn't all Native Americans that got citizenship. So we have to be careful when we think about our pronouns, we have to be careful when we think about all women, and what does that mean? It means that we need to look at ourselves and rethink what um, we opened with, which was a land acknowledgement. The land acknowledgement is actually not something that's a part of a past. It reminds ourselves to be in right relationship with the truth of the state and the truth of what it means to be on stolen ground, and that's to acknowledge that we weren't even considered people, one. And two, it's when we talk about constitution, we need to be talking about constitutions. When we talk about nation, we need to talk about nations. There are nine federally recognized tribes here in Oregon. And so when we think about the landscape, that has to be the forefront in order for us to do right, to be in right relation with the land. Um, I want to... Uh, I want to mention something that um, Eliza said about the um, gap, if you will, in who can vote. Um, or who could vote, especially with the um, 15th Amendment, not even being ratified by the state of Oregon. And to think about what that means to then have black women as part of the struggle for the right for women to vote in, in, in Oregon. So it's a very complicated issue that you have where there's that intersection of race and gender that constantly seems to play a role for those women who are you know, behind the scenes in a number of ways and, and even as women had to deal with the racism of the women who were working for the right to vote. So we can't really ignore that, that complication um, that existed for uh, black women. And I'll just speak to that a little bit because it's something we think about a lot and I appreciate both of these comments so much. And um, one of the things that I've been educated a lot about in my work is thinking about the difference between um, the rights of indigenous people and the rights of other folks of color in the United States because we're talking about civil rights and sovereign rights as I'm understanding it. And so at the same time as all this is going on and there are a lot of folks advocating for the Indian Citizenship Act in 1924, there's also a lot of work by state and federal governments to destroy sovereignty that native leaders protected. Um, well, how do I say this right? What I wanna say is that native leaders 
protected within the bounds of United States law through treaties, but of course didn't need those treaties to establish their own sovereignty and relationship. I'll say it a little bit that way, you can correct me hopefully. Um, but I'll say as, as Dr. Jackson is pointing out that there, there were, you know, Oregon did not ratify the 15th Amendment. A lot of folks know about the exclusionary clauses that were in the Oregon State Constitution, banned slavery and banned black people. At the same time, black men and women were leaders in the state. So in 1870, after the 15th Amendment was ratified, George P. Riley printed up um, a big, uh, um, had an event, he was quoted as an eloquent speaker who was going to speak on, quote, the colored citizen and the ballot at the Philharmonic Hall. So the folks who were here were resilient and demonstrating their leadership in spite of all of these kinds of oppressions that were happening anyway. And so for us, trying to hold all of that together is a big part of um, how we're trying to understand this history. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about for the black population um, in 1900, I believe it was, there were less than 1,000 African Americans in the state. And to have individuals who are pushing for certain kinds of rights, I think is very notable. But I think it also speaks to the difficulty of doing so in a place where you really were not welcome. And to think about what it means to for, for black women, to not be welcome as black, but then also to not be welcome in this struggle for uh, women's suffrage. I'm really interested in uh, teasing out the distinctions between a legal right, mm -hmm. the genuine access that allows folks to exercise that right, and the ongoing practice of exercising that right. So once the legal right to vote was technically granted uh, to women in Oregon, what barriers to access and full participation remain, both by community and other barriers, and then which of them remain still? Sort of like, what's the playbook then? What's the playbook now? What, where, how do we see these through lines coming throughout the decades that followed? I guess I'd start with, again, by reiterating, not all women got the right to vote um, through the 19th Amendment. And to think about, I don't know if, I, if playbook is the right um, term, and I don't know that I have the right term in terms of legality. In terms of indigenous people, um, what it means to enact, embody, and be our sovereign selves, our most empowered selves, in the face of pretty solid, brutal erasure and oppression, particularly in the context of women, I think it requires that we sit in the knowledge and understanding that about 84% of women, Native American, American Indian women, are, experience violence. We're raped one in three. One in three. One in three. We experience suicide at rates 3.5 times higher than any other group. And it's because of the purposeful, intentional playbook of erasure. And so I have a, a hard time trying to find a clear through line. And we haven't even begun to speak about what that intersectionality means, like in communities where you're black and Indian, right, where you're Latino and Indian, and what that means. And we talk about resilience, which I think matters, but I think it gets framed as um, look how much you've done to overcome and, and grit. And that actually undermines the actual concept of survivance, of lived experience through, again, 
being in right relationship with land and what sovereignty means. So I, I don't know the playbook is, like I hear what you're asking and I struggle to find the term. I struggle to find the through line in the context of what the, of the strategy concept of playbook is. So I don't know if I answered that. I'll just respond to that a little bit. I really appreciate the um, use of the word erasure uh, in the historic academic field, we often talk about assimilation and all of the assimilation policies of the federal government. So in the, the late 19th and early 20th century, a lot of those policies were ongoing theft of native land through various laws and that kind of thing, the theft of native children into boarding schools, the theft of culture and language, um, all of that kind of thing. So and I think erasure is a good word for that. And so all of what you were just talking about are the realities of today. When we think about the barriers that can be put into place for voting, right? So if you think about a voter ID law, what does it take to get an ID? It takes money. It takes enough safety and security in your life to be able to get to the DMV or wherever it is to get it, right? This is just to exercise the very baseline of engagement in a self-ruled society, right? So if we think about all the ways that white supremacy enacts onto various populations and the ways that those, that those enactments can get in the way of access to whatever is needed to register to vote and to get to a vote, I think you get to a much bigger picture of how that can happen. We can look at specific examples like a North Dakota law that said your, your ID to be able to vote had to have a street address which a lot of reservation residences don't have, that's explicitly targeted at indigenous folks living on a reservation without actually having to say it. Now there's been court fights and people have won on that, but you know those are the kinds of things that we continue to see. In Oregon in 1924, um, close to 80% of Oregon voters voted to enact a literacy test so that voters then had to be able to demonstrate their ability to read English to be able to get their access to the ballot. That, my understanding is, was not overruled until it was made illegal through an expansion of the Voting Rights Act in the later 20th century. And that's an anti-immigrant policy. So when you're looking at um, all of the barriers to the vote, right, what you're looking at is the barriers to access to power in a democratic society. So. There's, there's a lot of them, um, and from some of the reading that I've done, my understanding is this is, we, we may see this happening differently today, um, that there may be one political party who's enacting these barriers a lot more than another. That's new. The desire to restrict access to voting is not something that has been the purview of one political party, historically speaking. So there's just, the, the playbook is, is big and it's connected to a lot of these other systems as well. And, and one of those is social class. So if you think about you know, some of the things that you said, these are things that if you ignore the importance of social class, then you're ignoring the impact of the ability to participate in decisions that directly affect you. You're, you're being sort of, this is where erasure does come in, you know, in terms of being erased based on one social class. You are not in that category of people who have the ability to vote, who have the ability to ensure that there are laws in place that help uh, benefit them. Um, so if you are looking at, you know, getting rid of the voices of those people who may be 
you know, a nuisance, if you will. And here I also think about not only uh, social class, but let's look at um, the right for women to vote. The number of campaigns that were led that were anti-woman suffrage campaigns. So the, the fact that you have all of these types of barriers that are prohibiting or that are meant to prohibit access to political power and political representation by people, uh, you know, for people who are um, of certain categories. I think we are talking so many more people than any of us could even really imagine. For our radio audience, this is City Club of Portland's Friday Forum, coming to you from the Ecotrust Building in Northwest Portland. I'm Emily Evans of the Women's Foundation of Oregon, and with us today are Shandine Garcia, Executive Director of the Educator Advancement Council, Eliza Canty-Jones from the Oregon Historical Society, and Dr. Shirley A. Jackson from the PSU Black Studies Department. And we're discussing the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. So I'm interested in the sort of problematic premises that were granted when pursuit of suffrage itself became the goal. Um, I'm thinking of this particularly um, in, in the queer rights movement in, in recent years has been marked by um, really a strong desire to have access to the institution of marriage and the military, which tend to be some of the most conservative, oppressive <laughs> structures that we have. And so the, it's, it's interesting to me to reflect on, on the premises that are granted about the validity and the importance of those institutions um, just by the pursuit of them, the centrality of the pursuit of them in a broader movement for liberation. So I'm really interested in when, when suffrage sort of became the goal, and it became the goal specifically for white women uh, to the exclusion of many other groups, including black men, what, what were we saying was valid about that goal? And what, upon reflection, do we think may have been problematic with that? I don't know, I'm just, I'm thinking it through as you're saying it. I think it grants a premise of exclusion right out of the gate when we center what it means to define citizenship and um, community and land. So I think, I don't, I'm not answering it, like, but when we center suffrage in the way it was, or when folks center suffrage in the way it was centered, I think we grant some premises that we have not begun to um, deconstruct in a way that we should. I think about the, um, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and how important that particular amendment has been in, pa in the past and in the present. So if you are trying to make an argument that a particular group should not have access to something, but you have no clear argument that can supersede, if you will, the intent of the Equal Protection Clause, to me, it's, 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 and I think it's actually something that has been useful in, in a lot of the um, debates, such as um, marriage, um, you know, and, and how marriage actually applies to so many people, not just simply a man and a woman, and not simply to somebody who happens to be of the same race. Because those battles have also been uh, uh, dealt with in the courts. You know, you, 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 for example, um, there are a number of, of court cases where you have black women who are arguing with the court that they are legally married to the person that they were married to, but yet if that person didn't want to pay alimony, what they could do is say, well, you know, she tricked me. 
She's not really, she's, she, she said she was something else. Oh, I didn't know she was black. Because that invalidates, that would invalidate that, that marriage. And there are a couple of really interesting cases, and one of them actually involves a hairdresser as an expert witness. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> anyway, um, I think it's useful to, to think about um, the way in which certain parts of the Constitution were at the time, perhaps, perceived to apply to a particular group, but then how useful those arguments, be, you know, they come in in handy when you're trying to make a case for other things. And I think that actually shows the, the power, if you will, of certain constitutional amendments. But I think it also is important to note which of those constitutional amendments are constantly being argued against. And where do you have the butting of heads? Where do you have people who are in the process of trying to argue against having certain rights afforded to a group of people. And if we look at, again, um, the right to vote, we take it in, we take a lot of this uh, for granted. I don't take it for granted, but I know that I'm somebody who understands my history as an African American. Um, what it meant for me to vote the first time meant this is something that my ancestors really struggled to win for me, and it's something that I do every single year. It doesn't matter where I live, I believe it's actually very important to participate in that process. But we have to recall those instances of um, those groups where that has not been so easy. It is a constant battle, and it is something that for some groups there are efforts to make sure that this is not something that you retain. I mean, I, I think the, the very fact that there has been such a long and diverse and sustained campaign to restrict voting rights to a smaller group of people indicates the power that voting does have, right? If it, if it wasn't an act that, that brought about some level of power and influence, then people wouldn't fight so hard to restrict it. That said, um, you know, I really understand the, the premise of the question, which I take to be sort of, okay, but are, are, we, um, are we sort of um, uh, accepting a certain kind of power of the state, generally speaking, by asking for the vote instead of asking for something else entirely, right? Is that sort of what you're saying? And I think that is also a question worth asking. So both of these things are true. Right, that it is, it's a powerful tool, it's one that people have used and, and continue to use to advance real and significant change, and if we consider it the only way that we um, figure out how we are organized as a society or how we advance the changes we want, then we're going to miss seeing something that's outside of the possibility um, that is constrained within the system we have. Right, so um, when I hear people talking about if we're thinking about how is our society in right relationship with the land, right? How are we in right relationship with each other? Is that a question that our governmental systems are asking? And if not, is that a question we can push our governmental systems to ask or is that a question that we need to go outside of them to ask? And where does the vote fall in that? So does asking for a vote n narrow our view or can we see it as one tactic in broader work. Sovereignty means not asking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you say more about that? 
we're granting a premise that we're asking and that we're playing in a system that's, pre, that's designed to erase and destroy based on greed and land. Sovereignty means you make manifest your relation with the land and your ancestors and your future without asking. I'm also really interested in this sort of non-linear path to suffrage, specifically how many losses and setbacks and ongoing struggles were a part of the journey for different groups at different times. In Oregon here, it took six times to pass suffrage, more than in any other state. In other Western states like Utah and Washington, women, white women gained the right to vote and then lost it for a period of time and then regained it. And so I'm curious about how this level of like setback, failure, um, winding road, and ongoing journey compares with other anti-oppression movements um, and, and whether or not we see, frankly, the level of outrage and um, and continued push for progress that we need to see when we see voter suppression efforts or de-enrollment, voter ID laws, um, anything anything that is actively interfering with the right to vote now, which is real and ongoing for underrepresented groups. I think it's it's a part of it has to do with trying to keep people in their place. If you think about having the right to vote for women being this, this um, very uh, bumpy road or this road where you have, you know, you, you, you think you know the direction and then somebody sends you on another path and you now have to start from where you began and it's a very difficult path. I think if you consider the way in which we see this so often. Um, I'm going to give the example of the right to vote as it pertained to the, the struggle for suffrage in the southern United States. You have a group of white women who have all of this support, um, you know, for white women primarily, but there are also black women who are participating as well. When these marches were taking place in the southern United States, you had white women asking black women to sort of make themselves scarce, if you will, or to not part participate in marches in the South for fear that it would offend white women. So there is that problem of racism that was there, but it's like, well, let's just ignore this issue of racism because it's all about women getting the right to vote. Well, what about black women? Mm -hmm. and, and the fact that you would have women who would say, well, we just don't want to offend these, these women over here. With the suffrage movement, you also had men who were fearful that women were going to become men or become you know, men-like in the sense that you've got pictures of little girls who are putting on pants, you know, or you have the, you know, the fear that women are suddenly going to be so independent that you're just not gonna know what to do with them anymore. So there's this, this desire to sort of keep people in their place. And I think that's what, you know, what we're seeing with these peaks and valleys and, and the bumpy road and that it's not this smooth you know, path, but it's fraught with a lot of discontent. It's, it's fraught with a lot of concern, 
but it's also um, a path that for many women, they saw it as directional. We're gonna, we're gonna take this particular path and we may have to do a couple of things that we don't like, but in the end, hopefully we'll have this, this goal that we've, we've reached. But unfortunately, it did not come very smoothly for those women who did not fit into a particular um, characterization of womanhood and femininity and who should have the right to vote. And that certainly didn't include um, women of color and it certainly, certainly didn't include um, those white women who were poor. What I can say about this is that um, many of the folks who, who do history work caution very strongly against the progress narrative. So there's this narrative of the United States that's like, hey, there's these founding documents, they're, they are visionary, they're revolutionary, they're transformative, they're incredible. And we know that in some ways they certainly were, right? And then people will say the history of the United States is our work to live up to these founding documents. And it's taken some time, but, but you can see that we're always marching on and forward to really making real what this says and that history is marching forward all the time, right? And I would really caution against that for any number of reasons, right? Thinking about the, the you know, massive um, enslavement of African people and um, theft and genocide against indigenous people that's at the, the foundation of all that, just the very beginning of it. But also the idea of this progress narrative can really lull us into thinking like, oh, well, you know, people just figured out eventually that of course women should have the vote, and then women got the vote, right? And we figured, well, of course slavery was wrong, and then we ended slavery. But when you look at these histories, they're all, they're just, they're deeply complicated, and there's conflict all throughout, and the pushback never ends. Right, so we do, we have we seen the pushback on women engaging in the political sphere? Is that all done? Is that all taken care of? Of course not, right? Um, and so I think that have, have we seen the, the full realization of the recognition of everyone's complete humanity in the United States? And, you know, no, that's not where we are. So I think that when we look at all of these histories, really if you're looking at a history that's presented as we're, we're marching toward justice and the enactment of our ideals as if it's somehow inevitable and it just happens, I would just encourage you to question that and really look for the, the places of conflict. And um, Dr. Kimberly Jensen, who's a wonderful historian of women in Oregon and elsewhere, um, you know, taught me that a long time ago, that you look at these narratives of success and never think it's over, never think that victory is won forever. So. I, I, I have a project that I've been working on for years. I'll get it done at some point, but it, it actually has gotten so large. Um, what I decided to do was look at um, editorial cartoons from a variety of newspapers, mainstream newspapers and the black press during different time periods. And one of the eras that I um, am looking at is the civil rights era. And it's really interesting to see how editorial cartoons look at the um, path to the Civil Rights Bill and the Voting Rights Bill. And again, if you're thinking this is this easy thing, and oh, it was just so smooth and it was so lovely, 
Well, not really, because there are all kinds of interesting images. I know that there's one that, that always sticks out in my mind. It's a little black girl who represents the Civil Rights Act, and there is um, President Kennedy who's trying to walk her across the street, and yet he gets run over. Uh, so there are these, so it's, what it's trying to do is show you this is not this easy path. There are so many different things that we see in history where there is this narrative that, oh yes, it was smooth. We started here, we started, we, we ended there. Anybody who's ever been to a meeting <laughs> knows nothing is ever smooth. You want to vote on one thing, and it seems really simple. It should take five minutes. It should not take five meetings, but yet it does. One of the um, set, like nuanced, smaller sub-stories in, in the history of suffrage is the ways that we saw folks in power, mostly white men, using women's suffrage as a tool for their own maintenance of power, rather than the power sharing that it appears to be on the surface. So in Montana and Wyoming, who were not widely populated states, they didn't have enough women, and they wanted more representation in Congress. So they were like, cool, vote, come on out, it's gonna be great. <laughs> Um, and then in, in Utah, you saw um, white men being particularly afraid that black men would get the right to vote, and so they sort of did a horse trade around white women getting the right to vote. And they thought that women would come out and vote in large numbers against polygamy. And so when they gave it to them, women came out in large numbers and actually voted for polygamy, which is another whole fascinating <laughs> scenario. But I'm particularly interested in the ways that suffrage was sort of used to obfuscate or distract or um, actually maintain power structures or was seen as the least of all possible evils when you were talking about any type of suffrage or, or rights gaining. So I'm, I'm really interested about that. It seems like such a Trojan horse of like, we're power sharing, JK. I don't, I don't know that I have a response to the question, or that do I fully understand the question. Um, I think efforts to dehumanize people, to use people's body for their gain, is a level of violence we, that we don't talk about. We talk about them in soft language like barriers or soft language like rights, but when we're creating mechanisms to enact violence on human bodies, um, I feel like I feel like we're participating in the same on the same like in the same playbook. If if you know what I mean, like I I think when we take a platform and wield it and don't talk about what that means in terms of um, cultural genocide and and ancestral genocide and um, I think we, we grant too much of a premise in that playbook. I think we, um, we have a, another few minutes then we're gonna take questions. I'm interested in some of the names. I know um, folks here who have scratched the surface of, of Suffrage in Oregon likely know Abigail Scott Dunaway's name. Who are the other likely under-celebrated, specifically women of color, leaders in Oregon's movement for suffrage? This is for you, Eliza, or anybody else. Okay. <laughs> um, in 1872, um, I, I'm really liking this phrase that uh, sovereignty doesn't ask, right? Um, and so I think that it makes me think about the ways that people enact direct action in their protest. 
um, which is also a way of not asking, I think. Um, now I'm worried I'm co-opting that phrase. But <laughs> when I think about doesn't ask, I'm thinking about women in 1872, including Susan B. Anthony and others who said, look, here's the 15th Amendment. It says citizens have voting rights. We're going to go vote. Right? And so many folks know that Susan B. Anthony was arrested and fined $100 for trying to vote in 1872 and that the Supreme Court eventually said, yeah, you're citizens, but that doesn't mean you get the right to vote. You're special as women. Not really fully hum adult human beings, right? So, but in Oregon in 1872, um, there were four women who engaged in that same direct action. Um, and so they were Abigail Scott Dunaway, Maria Hendy, um, Mrs. Lamb, and then also a woman named Mary Beatty, who is an African-American woman. Um, and so here's a woman in 1872, Oregon, this is 13 years after the Constitution saying no black people could live in the state, was not only living in the state, um, but was out making herself extremely visible, protesting against the lack of her right to vote. So I think Mary Beatty's amazing, and historian Jean Ward is doing more research on her, so we're all gonna know a lot more about Mary Beatty um, in the coming months, so keep your eye on her. Um, another woman I would talk about is uh, Dr. Chan, Mrs. S.K. Chan. Uh, she formed and led a local Chinese equal suffrage society in Portland. Um, she spoke at an April 1912 luncheon with 150 suffragists in attendance. Um, she talked about uh, Oregon's need to catch up with the states on all three sides, California, Idaho, and Washington had all granted woman suffrage by that time. And she said, quote, China completing the square. So she was looking across the Pacific because at the time it appeared that China had recently granted to suffrage, um, suffrage to women in Nanking. So here is a Chinese woman in 1912, this is 30 years after the Chinese Exclusion Act. She's not only organizing, but she's being very public and hosted a luncheon for 150 other suffragists that was covered by the newspaper. That's pretty impressive. Um, and then the third one is Hattie Redmond, um, who maybe more folks know about um, in part because of the work of historian Jan Dilge and all of the research that she did around the 1912 suffrage centennial here. Uh, Hattie Redmond came to Oregon uh, with her parents from Missouri in the late 1800s. Uh, her husband, Emerson Redmond, died in 1907. Uh, and during the 1912 campaign, she participated in the Oregon Colored Women's Council and the Portland YWCA. She was president of the Colored Women's Equal Suffrage Association and she served on the state central campaign committee for the woman suffrage um, campaign in 1912. So she was a leader um, working, a leader of other black women and then working in coordination um, with other leaders from other communities. And she registered to vote in April 1913. That was super impressive. <laughs> Thanks to the people who did the actual research. <laughs> Uh, as I said when I opened, I'm a guest here in Oregon, so um, I wasn't raised in Oregon history. I've had the privilege of working with the Nine Nations um, for the past 16 years. And one of the things that we teach about when we were talking, when we were trying to pass tribal history, shared history, Senate Bill 13, was um, to help folks understand that when people, when uh, Hillary Clinton was running for office about, oh, we have a first woman president. Actually, Dolores Pigsley of the Confederate Tribes of Celeste Indians has been the president of her nation for longer. And so, again, trying to help us focus on women leaders now and what they have gone through to be the amazing women that they are, I would point out um, 
the leader of Confederate Tribes of Siletz Indians, uh, Dolores Pigsley, and a leader for the Coquille Tribe, Brenda Mead. These women have been leading their nation for a long time, and it's not generally understood by most people who live in Oregon. For our radio audience, this is City Club of Portland's Friday Forum, coming to you from the Ecotrust Building in Northwest Portland. I'm Emily Evans of the Women's Foundation of Oregon. With us today are Shandine Garcia, Executive Director of the Educator Advancement Council, Eliza Canty-Jones from the Oregon Historical Society, and Dr. Shirley A. Jackson from the PSU Black Studies Department. And we've been discussing the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. And we're now going to open the floor to questions. We'd like to welcome our civic scholars to come to the mic and ask the first question. Everyone watching or listening today is welcome to ask a question. If you've written a question on an index card, hold it high for City Club staff to collect. You may also submit questions via Twitter using the hashtag Friday Forum. And to those who would like to ask a question at the mic, please identify yourself first and ask one question in 30 seconds or less. Hi, my name is Alex Mendoza. Um, and uh, related to uh, mechanisms of like prevention from uh, voting or whatever, um, real ID, um, targeting people based on their uh, citizenship, whether they can travel or not. Um, I feel like it's just quietly creeping up on us, and I don't, I don't know what we should do. Um, any insight on that? I, um, I think that's a terrific question, and I recently read um, a headline that I really loved about this. They said that. In the past, barriers, um, which is a soft word for the total erasure of humanity and, and power, uh, were super overt. You can't be in this state. You have to pay this poll tax. You, you must pass this literacy test. And now they're just slightly more thinly veiled. And he said, they said it will be administrative and, uh, and clerical. And things will be like, oh, this is just about having stronger ID, or oh, this is just about cleaning up our database, or this is just about making sure that we have the right records of this side or the other. And that it's so easy to hide that same level of evil behind these like very, uh, seemingly very administrative or very tactical or very small uh, things that are being used to prevent people to vote. I think your question was, what do, what do we do? Yeah. You're doing it. You question it, and you recognize that it's proxy for dehumanization. You're doing it. Hi, my name is Sally Bachman, and uh, I really appreciate a lot of your points. Uh, Asian Americans were not um, allowed to vote if they were first generation after the 19th Amendment was passed. Um, women who married non-Americans lost their citizenship. Native American women who were married to white men were able to vote, and so on. So I think the, the um, structure is implicit and explicit in our in our society are complicated. And I'm, my question is, which one of the complicated barriers to voting do you think we should be working on first? Or is there a sequence that we should be following? That is such an interesting question to ask <laughs> because um, there's so many things um, swirling in my mind right now, as I'm sure there are for anybody who pays attention to the news, right? What are the ways that our election systems 
and our um, access to the power of individual human beings are under deep attack and threat right now, right? So I think when you're asking that, what should we be paying attention to? I think paying attention to citizenship and restrictions on citizenship and denial on citizenship and potentially even asking the question of why do we have this anyway, right? The, the, it, climate change is here. Climate refugees are here and will continue to be here. What will be the future of the borders of nation states? What will be the ways that we solve the problems of the next 10, 20, 40, 80 years? And is citizenship the right thing to be thinking about? In the meantime, how do we ensure access to citizenship for people who need it, right? Because that, that point about no first generation Asian American had access to citizenship until 1952 with the passage of the McCarran-Walter Act, right? So the ways that citizenship can be given and taken away are really, really easy, right? What are the other attacks on voting right now? We, and you know, in 2000, the Supreme Court decided a, a presidential election, right? That was 20 years ago, and, and remember that, right? So I think that these questions, and then also, um, I really appreciate the answer of you're doing it by asking questions and drawing attention to this because the other thing that we're facing very deeply right now is confusion and exhaustion and cynicism and fear about the system in itself. So shedding light on ways that our electoral systems are under attack, shedding light on the ways that the, the access to a one person, one vote idea is under attack, paying attention to that not getting exhausted, continuing to stay involved. Um, I think you asked for one thing and I gave 12, but there we go. I think that's the answer, yeah. right? I think the answer is, and so where I enter is through education. So my, I studied curriculum theory for eight years. That's what I got a PhD in. Like I believe the more we can think about what we put in front of folks to engage in and ask and question, like what do you lean into? There are a thousand ways to enter it. Not entering it is a choice though. And we can't pretend that doing nothing is, isn't also a choice. Brenda Barati, City Club member. Thank you for an amazing discussion about the long struggle for all women to get the vote. My question is this. It's 2020, big election year. Women are 51% of the population. How do we motivate and inspire all women to get out to vote this year and not sit on the sidelines, not think that it's not important to vote and get out there and, and cast their vote, which we all fought very hard to get over many, many years as we now know today. I think that, um, I think that the immediate election is important. Obviously, there's a, there's a lot riding on it. And I think that when we focus on get out the vote efforts for an immediate goal, like an election that's within three, five, six months, we miss the long game. Because these voter suppression efforts, these dehumanizing, these colonization efforts, they've been at it for centuries. In fact, with the current round of administrative um, voting barriers, 
that's a, they've been playing a 40-year offense. And when we play a six-month defense for a 40-year offense, it's, it just doesn't stack up. So while I think it's critical that we think about the get-out-the-vote efforts, and I think that's wildly important, I think it, it becomes a major distraction when we focus on this only on the short game and don't look at the long arm of oppression and disenfranchisement that's, that's prompted such difficulty in the short term. So I think... That's not, that's not a very satisfying answer. I mean, get out, knock on doors, talk to your friends, work with things in your sphere of influence. There's a lot of incredible places in town and in our state that are doing good work on that. But the moment we get distracted by the immediate is the moment we've lost the 40 year long game, in my mind. I'll, I'll add two things. Um, if you are feeling overwhelmed and that's keeping you or people you know from being involved, pick the one thing. Pick the one issue you care about, pick the one campaign you care about, and just focus on that. You don't have to fix everything, just be involved. And then the other thing I would say is read history. Read history books. Because when you read good history books, and there are so many out there, and obviously the Oregon Historical Quarterly, but that gives you that, gives you that perspective to be able to see that long game, to be able to see the, the the depth of this history and to be able to understand the cons how difficult it is for power to concede, right? And what that means when power consolidates. You can see those patterns. So pay attention to your elders and read history. Good afternoon, Lanny Block-Wilker, and thank you all for providing a really important historical context on barriers to access and representation. And my question is, moving forward, looking at voting reforms that could improve access and representation, um, would your communities be in favor of ranked choice voting, which is a top four? It would eliminate um, kind of elitist primaries where a small group picks a winner. Um, and you would have an instant runoff, so it would be less expensive. It would allow uh, more minorities and diverse candidates to win. And I'm wondering if your organizations have an opinion on ranked choice voting? My organization doesn't have an opinion on one. Um, I think there are lots of mechanical ways that we can improve the process of voting and selection, including ranked choice voting, including having zones um, of especially smaller municipalities, which are having um, at large elections for city council and county uh, seats often precludes women and uh, communities of color from running because they're so much more expensive. There are all kinds of administrative ways that we can make it more accessible. I also think that we need to look at the, at the lack of broad civic engagement and the structure around supporting our students to engage meaningfully with real history uh, and that being the runway to these smaller things around administrative components making it a lot easier. Because right now we don't, we don't equip our communities and our students and our citizens with the capacity to engage with these real questions in the ways that they need to. And I'll say, just because our organizations don't do this doesn't mean others don't. And so if you are interested in the civic structure of the place where you live, might I suggest joining City Club and becoming involved in a research committee and creating um, a, a recommendation through the City Club. And again, broken record, might I recommend getting to know what the tribal governments in your state look like, how they operate, how they actually manifest sovereignty as they center their own nation and their strengths and their communities. 
Good afternoon, I'm Debbie Kay, President of the League of Women Voters of Portland. Thank you so much for being here. This is, well, as we all know, we're here, a very, very important series of topics. My question is civics education. I'm delighted to see students from Jefferson High School. We're talking about barriers to voting. We're talking about encouraging voting. What do you recommend about enhancing, improving, uplifting civics education in the state of Oregon? <laughs> that was a fast pivot to, um, again, I'm going to continue to repeat a little bit of what I've said. Um, for those of you who aren't aware, um, we passed a really important bill called Tribal History Shared History, Senate Bill 13, that requires K-12 embed contemporary, accurate, place-based knowledge of indigenous peoples past and today in Oregon. We also passed the Ethnic Studies Bill. We also passed the Holocaust Studies Bill. We also passed, so I believe deeply that um, the intentional erasure has to be met on all sides through the classroom in ways that, when, that, in ways that we can shift both current teachers, future teachers, educative preparation programs, and in doing so, we can create racially affirming work environments where kids don't experience trauma. Every, if I have to listen to another story of my sons coming home and saying, you would not believe what happened today. You would not believe another thing that happened today. And when we work to pass Tribal history, shared history. I told my sons, this is not going to happen in your lifetime. You're not going to see the curricular content change in your lifetime, but we're going to work on it. We're going we're to work with community. We're going to, he came home last Friday and said, Mom, you're not going to believe what happened to me in school today. And I said, I can't take it. I can't do another, I cannot. He said, my teacher, South Eugene High School, introduced the essential understandings of Native Americans in Oregon because a bill was passed and now we're going to start to learn about the nations here in Oregon. So I believe strongly in civics education in the context of what it means to center first peoples as a conduit to understand the entirety of the history of the state and the contemporary of the state from a strength-based perspective. Not the so sad, so awful, so beaten, so no, so amazing, so brilliant, so like the, the contributions, the strength from the folks who've experienced it themselves. This will be the last question. Hi, my name is uh, Jada. I'm from Jefferson High School, and I'm sorry, I have really bad anxiety when it comes to talking to crowds. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, but I was just, it's not really a question, but I'd like to add to the thing about voting and like how, uh, sorry, um, Muslims, Muslim Americans and stuff like that, like Arabs are being banned from coming to the States and we are, I feel like we're slowly losing our rights to being citizens in America and we could be losing our voting rights if, you know, the president we currently have stays in office. Um, and not just Muslim Americans, also Mexicans being kicked out of America to just go back to Mexico, Mexico because we kind of have a racist president. Um, I just would like to hear your opinion on that stuff. 
Okay. <laughs> I will first say thank you very much um, for standing up and raising this issue. I really appreciate it. And um, so I would just go back to some of what we've talked about today, right? And the importance of understanding that the history and reality and, and ongoing experience um, of the effort to create a society wherein each person in their full humanity has the ability to enact to influence a government that is based in the self-rule of the people, right? That is, in many ways, a noble vision that is worth fighting for. And I think that there are many, many examples in our history of people who've done that, and there are many leaders and people to look to today who are doing that. So pay attention to the people who are advocating dehumanization, but don't only pay attention to them. Right? There are other people working too. And so look to the people who are fighting for what's right. And listen to the people who are saying, you know, as Shandine is saying here, right? There are more than one ways to organize a society. And there are nations here in our state, nine of them, who have other ways of organizing their society as well. Pay attention and learn there too. So there isn't just one way. And we have opportunities to create I, I do think we're a species who can do better as a species on the planet. And I do think that we have that in us. And there are more of us who want to do better and have a just and peaceful and productive world than don't. So we can just all do that together. Thank you all so much for being here today. Our time is up and we'll have to pause the conversation for now. We're so grateful to everyone who made today's forum possible. Thank you to Shandine Garcia, Eliza Candy-Jones, and Dr. Shirley Jackson for joining us. We are adjourned. <laughs>